Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. It's such a joy to come and meet with you guys. I love y'all so much. And just to be a part of worship and family in here, I just I tell people all the time, I just can't imagine what a privilege it is just to be the pastor and to, to be a part of this family and just loving on y'all. Y'all pray for me this morning. I've got a cough. I've had it for like two weeks. Um, I got it from my granddaughter, Garnet. In fact, uh, Amy asked Garnet the other day, she said, Garnet, did you get over your cough? And she said, I sure did. You know why? And Amy said, no, why? And she said, I gave it to Pop. <laughs> so I don't want to give my cough to you. So I'm going to kind of try to maintain distance. Well, I was watching these videos the other day, you know, these Instagram videos that you can watch, just two and three minute, 30 second videos. And it was one of those videos, I'm sure you've seen it before, of these scuba diver guys and they're down in the water and they're like feeding sharks or messing with sharks. And in this particular one, there was a shark that had the coloration of a great white shark, only he was smaller. And uh, he was coming up to him and he was actually opening his mouth, looked like he was trying to bite the scuba guy. And the scuba guy just casually put his hand on the shark's nose and sort of pushed him away. And the shark kind of came back aggressive and he pushed him away even harder and the shark just swam off. And I was thinking about that and I can just say, real life is not like that. I had the unfortunate experience one time of actually being in open water with sharks, totally unplanned, totally unprepared for it. And my experience was totally different than that calm demeanor of that scuba guy touching the shark's nose. I had a friend that used to charter sailboats in the Caribbean, and and he took me a couple of times. And in this particular time, it was him and myself and two other friends, and we were all down in the British Virgin Islands sailing on this sailboat. They call it bareboat sailing, and basically you rent the sailboat, you go wherever you want. And on this day, we had sailed around the British Virgin Island of Tortola around the north side, and we had come upon these little islands. It was lunchtime, and so they said, hey, let's, let's catch a mooring ball and let's, let's have some lunch. A mooring ball is uh, the British government put these giant balls in the water that float on top of the water, and they're chained down so that the sailors down there can just come up, tie a rope to the front of that, and you don't have to anchor and mess with all that, and you don't tear up the reef and all that. So for a weekly fee, you can tie up to a mooring ball. So we tied up to a mooring ball, and we had lunch. And there was a pristine, I don't know what little island it was, but there was a pristine uh, coral reef right beside it. And the guys are like, hey, let's go check out that reef. So we, we put on our mask, we put on our snorkel, put on our fins, and we all kind of do this backward flip into the water like Jacques Cousteau, if you guys remember who that guy is. And, and you know, we're just acting kind of goofy. But we forgot to put the ladder down. Now, that's important later. Because those sailboats, the, the deck of the boat is about four or five feet above the water line. So getting out of water without a ladder on those big boats is pretty hard. The sailboat was like 44 feet long, and I don't know how wide, but it's a big boat. So we go over and we're, we're snorkeling for about an hour and, you know, we're seeing all kinds of incredible things. And then we say, let's go back. And so we start to head back and then it turns into a race, you know, because it's four guys and it has to be a competition. And I happen to get back first. And when I got back to the boat, there were two giant sharks. When I say giant, they could have been three feet. They could have been 10 feet. I don't know. They were just sharks. Somebody said, what kind of sharks were they? I said, I don't know. The biting kind. 
So, you know, and let me just say, when you're in the water with sharks, you don't really think about anything else. So I see the sharks and I look back at my friends and I said, sharks. And immediately there's this mass panic. And that's when we realized we forgot to let the ladder down. We couldn't get back in the boat. And so now we're in the water with sharks and we don't have anywhere to go. And the sharks are getting agitated because we're panicking and you're watching them. And, you know, they're like flying by back and forth. And it's pretty terrifying. So I swam as fast as I could to the back of the boat and jumped in that little uh, inflatable dinghy, uh, little boat you pull along behind the sailboat with a motor on it. So I'm safe. My friends are at the front of the boat. They can't get to the back. So one of them decides the best option is to climb up on the mooring ball. So if you can imagine a grown man with flippers and masks trying to get his whole body, appendages and all, up on top of the mooring ball to get out of the water, it's like, it's like trying to ride a beach ball in the, in the ocean. And my other friend decides he's going to climb the line from the mooring ball to the boat. But when you do that, the boat just slowly slides toward the mooring ball and you just sort of sink back down in the water, only now you can't see. Because there's another problem here, and that is you can only see the shark when your face is in the water. So if you're all out of the water, which you're trying to get, you don't know where they are. So they're like, where are they? Where are they? So I'm in the little inflatable dinghy thing. So I lean over on my belly and I got my face in the water and I go, he's right beside you, Ray. And Ray like comes out of his skin. It's like Jesus walking on water. He's trying to get anywhere he can. And Scott's doing this. And that's when I realized the power I had over the situation. I'm the only one that can see the sharks and I'm in charge of shark reports and they don't know whether I'm lying or not. And so I start going, look out, he's coming right at you. <laughs> you know. And I did that for a little while until it wasn't fun anymore. And finally the sharks swim off and the other guy, Terry, I don't know where he was the whole time. He was a fireman, so he scaled the side of the boat, let the ladder down. And we, we sort of flopped onto the deck of the boat and all just started roaring with laughter. And we looked over and another boat was beside us and they were like, what is wrong with these guys? Because they don't know what we were just been through. But I learned some lessons that day about what to happen when you're swimming with sharks. And here's what I learned. Four important lessons. First, you don't plan it. The sharks just show up. And they show up uninvited. Second, the size of the danger is difficult to assess. All sharks are big Third, escape is the only thing you can think about. You want out of the water. And fourth, humor is lost until later. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, those four lessons are true in life. Because we can be cruising along when suddenly we find ourselves surrounded by sharks. And that may be where you are right now. You know, you were just cruising along and You found out that your mate was Facebook messaging someone else. And there's fins in your water now. Or maybe your company's not doing well. Inflation's starting to take its bite and it's hard to make ends meet. And you got too much month left at the end of the paycheck. And or you got kids that are in trouble or somebody close to you and your family's got an addiction Or maybe you just made a terrible mistake uh, and you can't seem to walk it back and you can't seem to get on. Or maybe you committed some terrible sin and you, you realize, 
I, it's affecting my life, and I, I can't figure out what to do with it. Um, and I'm up here talking about joy. And you're going, yeah, joy's great, but you're not in the water I'm in, and you're not surrounded by the fins that I see. Well, let me just say this. Uh, Paul deals with joy as an enduring thing. And our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. <clears throat> and I want to go back there, but I want to set the scene for you because this is really, uh, I think he's going to unpack the secret of enduring joy in these few verses. And I think the important part is the context to realize that Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome when he writes this letter. And this is a book of joy. The word joy and rejoice occurs in Philippians per capita more than any other book in the New Testament. So it's a book of joy, but it's written by a prisoner. But his biggest danger is not behind him. His biggest danger is in front of him because he has to go before Caesar Nero, who's one of the most maniacal, despotic, unpredictable, sadistic characters in the history of the world. And he's going to argue his case in front of Nero, and the situation is certainly life and death. But in the middle of that, he models joy. And so in 18 through 30 of chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul unlocks the secret of enduring joy. So let's get our Bibles, let's look at them, turn our devices on. And, and here's the first insight that becomes readily apparent. Joy demands the right priorities. This is the, this is the first thing. I think it's one of the reasons so few people really walk with joy because so few people really are pursuing the right thing. They're chasing the wrong thing. In fact, what do we all want? If we talk about joy-related things, what do we all want? Well, we all want happiness. Isn't that what we talk about? And I've talked about this and contrasted a little bit over the last couple of weeks because the, the American dream is the pursuit of happiness, right? But you know the word happiness never occurs in the Bible, not in the New Testament. It doesn't, it, the Bible doesn't promote happiness. Now, I know some people translate the Beatitudes as happy are those or happy are the poor and all that. In fact, there was a guy named Robert Schuler who wrote a book on the Beatitudes called the Be Happy Attitudes. And, and that's really, nothing could be further from the truth. The, the Beatitudes are not about happiness. They're about an abiding sense of spirit-controlled life that manifests itself in a blessedness or a joy. And that's very different from how you're like, well, then what is the difference between joy and happiness? And I was trying to figure out a way to kind of give you an image that would help you with this. And I think it works like this. Happiness is like a dandelion. Who doesn't like a dandelion, right? You walk along, you see this little fuzzball of seeds, and what do you want to do? Well, you're going to bend over, you're going to pick it up, and you're going to blow it. And the minute those seeds are in the wind, the experience with the dandelion is over. That's happiness. It's a circumstantial thing that's temporary, right? And one of the problems with happiness is it's a moving target. Um, what used to make you happy won't make you happy anymore. For example, the older you get, the less dandelions you're willing to bend over and pick up, right? When was the last time, if you're over 30, you picked up a dandelion and blew it? But what does every kid do? Every kid loves a dandelion because it's something new and fresh. And whoa, who doesn't like to do that? But as an adult, you kind of grow out of that. And so the joy you had in that, even that metaphor begins to break down, doesn't it? 
But joy, on the other hand, is more like resurrection fern. You ever heard of that stuff? I moved here 21 years ago from Texas, and we didn't have resurrection fern. In fact, we barely had trees where I was from. We had mesquite trees, which are a form of tree. None of the trees in the, in the town we lived in were taller than the houses, which is really weird when you come here. My friends who would come over here from Texas would go, man, I can't handle this. Why? And they'd say, I'm claustrophobic. And I'm like, why? And they'd go, I can't see what's coming at me. And I'm like, well, there's, there's nothing coming at you, so you're okay. Just enjoy that giant tree there. We moved into an old pecan orchard, and, and on these old trees, there was this sort of uh, dried up gray stuff that looked like moss. And come to find out, that's called resurrection fern. I didn't know it at the time. And uh, it only grows on old growth pecans and old growth oaks. I guess that's where they get the expression mossy oak. And it was kind of cool. And we thought, well, that's kind of cool. And then it rained. And when the rain came, that old dried up gray stuff suddenly came to life in this green fern that grows all along the limbs of the trees. It comes completely back to life. And it happens every time. Right now, my trees in my house, they're covered in gray, shriveled up moss. But later on, when it rains, it's going to turn bright green again. That's why they call it resurrection fern. And I got to thinking about joy, and I I thought, you know, joy is like a resurrection fern. There are times when when it feels lost and dead and the hurts and heartaches of life make it hard to smile and the feeling of joy has died. But the character of joy remains. You see, joy never leaves. It just waits for a fresh rain to bring it back to its full life. And here's what I realized. Joy endures because it's not a feeling. Joy is an act of faith. That's why in Philippians 4.4, we're going to read when we get there, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. In other words, I rejoice in the Lord when my life's going the way I want it to, and I rejoice in the Lord when it's not. Rejoice in the Lord always. In a few weeks we get there, we'll drill down on that a little bit more. But I want you to understand that our joy is not in our circumstances. Our joy is where? What does he say rejoice in? The Lord. And so when my experiences become overwhelming and crushing, by faith, I walk in joy. And I trust in the goodness of God. I say, wait a minute, my life is bad, but God is good. And I'm convinced of the love of God, that nothing's happening to me that causes God to love me less. And I rest in the care of God. If and since God loves me, He's going to take care of me. And that means that I can pursue the will of God even when my experience isn't positive. And I will rejoice in the purposes of God as He unlocks His will for my life. And that comes out and it translates into this. Even when my circumstances and feelings say otherwise, I can still live with joy. There's this enigmatic statement that Paul makes over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I mean, don't just dance across that because you've heard it before. Let that kind of sink in. As sorrowful, so my experience is sorrowful, but my reaction is joyful. That's paradoxical. You could never say that of happiness. Because happiness and sorrow cannot coexist in the same soul, but joy and sorrow can. 
And so Paul in that moment is describing all of these painful experiences of his life, but he concludes as sorrowful yet rejoicing. Now let's go back to Philippians chapter 1. And Paul is defining his priorities. He's already said so in verse 18. He says, what then? What then? Now wait a second, back up, get the context. The context is he's in prison. There are some people who are so determined to make his life miserable that they're actually propagating the gospel. I think they're doing it from a negative perspective. They're saying, Paul says Jesus died on the cross. What a, what a fool. Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead. What a, what a loon. Paul says that you have no hope without Christ. Paul says that Christ died for your sins and you can find forgiveness and healing and wholeness and all of that. And the people listening to that are like, wait a minute, I, I, I want to listen to Paul. And, and we see in this beautiful moment that, that Paul doesn't get his eyes on the people, the detractors who are trying to hurt him. He says, what then? I don't care about those guys. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Now look at this. And in this, I will what? Rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Had happiness been the priority, then joy would have been an impossibility. But keep reading and look at the optimism. All of, all of this comes from having the right priorities. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So there's this faith engaged in joy. That's why I keep saying joy is a choice. You exercise your faith to experience joy. He's not pursuing happiness. He's not chasing happiness. He's pursuing God. You see that? Look at verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope. And that earnest expectation is this beautiful word in the original. It's only used by Christians. This word is never used outside of the church. And it literally means stretching my head forward. I stretch my head forward. I put my head into the future. I strain with my expectation and my hope. That's what hope does. And that's why Christians are so full of hope. Because no matter what we're experiencing right now, we can anticipate a different tomorrow. That I will not be put to shame in anything. And that word means disgraced or disfigured. Now watch this, Now, because I want you to see this. But with all boldness. Now he's talking about appearing before Caesar. He says, my earnest expectation is that I won't be put to shame in anything. I won't be disgraced. But with all boldness, Christ will even now as always, be exalted in my body. Now, look at this last part, whether by life or by death. He wasn't going before Caesar to plead his case to save his life. What was he hoping to do when he got before Caesar? He was hoping to win Caesar to Jesus. And his prayer for them was, pray for me that my earnest expectation and hope will be that now, as always, Christ is glorified through me, and, and his desire was to be exalted, life or death. And so the question for Paul wasn't, where is God in my pain? You know, I hear that all the time. I hear people, Christians, when they go through trouble, immediately, man, I don't know if I can trust God. Where is God in my pain? Where is God in my heartache? That was never Paul's question. Here's Paul's question, where will I be in God's purpose? That's his priority. And let me just say this. You get your priorities right and enduring joy gets right. You get your priorities right and joy is going to get right. Second thing is joy thrives on the right perspective. 
He says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, I mean, what, who thinks like this? Who talks like this? I mean, yeah, we all want to go to heaven, but nobody seems to be in a big hurry to get there. It's like that little boy in Sunday school. The teacher said, how many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And everybody in the room raised their hand except little Jimmy. And she said, Jimmy, you don't want to go to heaven? He said, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I just thought you were getting up a group to go right now. You know, it's like that old Kenny Chesney song, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Why is that? Why is it if we're convinced and believe uh, all that God has prepared for his children for eternity, why are we so reluctant to get there? Why would we do everything to stay out of, that wasn't where Paul was. It says to live is Christ, to die is what? Yeah, and these are the words of a man who could very well be about to die. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. He's struggling with this decision as if he were choosing between, let's see, do I go to Alaska on a cruise or do I go to Hawaii on a trip, you know? He's talking about living and dying. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Look at this, for that is very much better. Again, who talks like that? Remember, these aren't just words. Paul was facing a trial before Nero. Nero is the guy who would burn most of the city of Rome so that he could renovate the projects. And when everybody got so mad at him, he blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. And he began that persecution of the Christians. Nero's the guy that threw the Christians to the lions at the Colosseum. He's the guy that would take Christians, affix them to poles, pour oil over them, light them on fire to to light his gardens at night. That's Nero. And that's the crazy, insane sadist that Paul's about to go present his case before. And so he had every reason to believe that his days were numbered, but he doesn't seem to care. Look at verse 24. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. How, how do you talk like that? I mean, his whole thing was, I want, I want to stay here Um, for your progress, and notice that second word, for your joy. And I'm convinced that what I'm doing is so important for you that God will leave me here, even though this isn't what I would prefer. You know, someone said that those who do the most in this life think the least of it. I think that's true. I think of those words of Jim Elliott, who was killed by the Alka Indians that he was seeking to reach. And in his diary, he had written, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you get to that point? Do you, do you feel how his perspective affected his joy? I mean, what do you do with a guy like that? You can't stop him. You can't demoralize him. You can't discourage him because his joy is not attached to his experience. So what do you do with a guy like that? I'll tell you what you do with a guy like that. You follow him. 
And that's exactly what he says in the rest of this section. Verse 27, he, he turns from descriptive to prescriptive. Here's who I am. Here's what my priorities are. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you and remain or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for, for the faith of the gospel. He's saying, so lose yourself, surrender your rights. Focus yourself. Get get your eyes off the stuff around you and onto the one inside you. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Do you see that? Which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. And really, the New American, I I don't think it hits it on that word alarm. The New English translation gets it better. It says, and do not be intimidated in any way by your opponents. That's more the key. Look the bad guys right in the eye and don't be intimidated by them. Stand firm. Don't flinch. Let God be your strength. It'll demoralize them and it'll empower you. And, they'll, and it lets them see how great God is so that they will see the great God that's in you. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me and now here to be in me. You might think, this is Paul. How can we be expected to do that? Well, here's how. You've got the same spirit he had. When you embrace Christ by faith, he puts the same Holy Spirit in you that he put into Paul. He didn't have anything you don't have. And you have the ability to transcend your experiences and to walk in joy. You want a modern day equivalency? I'm reading the book uh, Killing the Killers by Bill O'Reilly. I don't think O'Reilly writes these books. I think the other guy, Dugard, does. But that Killing series is a great series. And the Killing the Killers is about the war on terror. And in that book, he tells the story of a young girl named Kayla Mueller. Maybe you remember her. Kayla Mueller uh, was working with Doctors Without Borders in Syria when uh, they were captured by ISIS, all four in the car, They eventually let the other three go, but they held on to Kayla Mueller. And for the next year and a half, she was put in solitary confinement, she was tortured, and she was repeatedly raped. And I, 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 you know, as I was reading this, I I became more interested in her story. I vaguely remembered it and so I, I did maybe what you do when you're reading books, why it takes me so long to read a book. I had to stop reading and I'd start Googling Kayla Mueller. And come to find out, she was a Christian, a very deeply committed Christian. That's why she was over there seeking to help Syrian refugees. And that was one of the things that the uh, Islamic terrorists hated about her and that they were determined to beat out of her. They wanted to convert her to Islam because they had the intention of marrying her off to the head of ISIS so she could be one of his nine or 20 wives, I don't know. But in the process, she she remained committed to Christ. Mueller's fellow hostages who were later freed told ABC News on in 2016, she never stopped caring for others and even defended her faith against the infamous British ISIS executioner named Mohammed M. M. Wadzius. Uh, also known as Jihadi John. One of the former male hostages from Denmark, Daniel Rye, explained uh, 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 Jihadi John paraded Mueller in front of the other captives. And he said this, quote, one of the captors started to say, oh, this is Kayla, and she's been held all by herself. 
And she's much stronger than you guys, and she's much smarter. She converted to Islam. And Caleb was like, no, I didn't. And Rice said, I wouldn't have had the guts to say that. I, I don't think so. It was very clear that all of us were impressed by the strength that she showed in front of us. That was very clear. Mueller's father did an interview, and he spoke extensively about how she relied on her faith. Kayla had written a letter to her parents while she was in prison. And Mueller's cellmates, who were eventually freed, gave the letter to her father in the spring of 2014 after she was murdered. Here's what Kayla wrote. I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I have come to a place in experience where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there was no one else. And by God and by your prayers, I have, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. I have been shown in darkness light and have learned that even in prison, one can be free. I am grateful. Look, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I just want, want to do a little self-assessment here. Um, in light of Kayla Mueller, in light of Paul, I got to ask this question. What does it take for you to lose your joy? I'm, I, know, I know we go through bad stuff. But I have to kind of self-evaluate it. I'm a little bit embarrassed by how little it takes for me to lose my joy, especially when I contrast it against a life that was so full of light. And I realize the joy I have reflects the faith that I have. And so sometimes when I have very little joy, that's really an expression of the depth of my faith. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I just think we need to ask that question. Because some of you guys are struggling. I mean, you're swimming with sharks right now. It's like that, you know, that old Jimmy Buffett song, Fins. Do you remember that? The lyrics went like this. Can't you feel them circling, honey? Can't you feel them swimming around? You've got fins to the left, fins to the right, and you're the only bait in town. You feel that way these days? I know I've had days I feel that way. And it's hard to... It's hard to conjure up joy in those kinds of circumstances, but I want to remind you, joy is not a circumstance. That's happy. Joy is an act of faith. And there are two keys that Paul demonstrates that unlock that. You've got to remember your priorities. What were you doing before the shark showed up? What does God want you to do? And you've got to remember your perspective. There's nothing that the sharks can do that will change God's plan for you. He's already set eternity for you. He's getting that ready. In the future, I, I, I'm going to prepare for you a mansion. Where I am there, you may be also. He's got all that ready. You don't have to worry about that. And so I can live with enduring joy. So can I ask you one more question? How's your joy? Because when I'm asking you, how's your joy? I'm really asking you, how's your faith? Maybe it's time to get a little deeper on both.
So why don't we do that right now? Let's just go before the Lord. And let's make this commitment. Father, I will be a joyful person. I'm not always going to feel joyful. And there are times like that resurrection fern where it's going to shrivel up and it may even look dead in that moment. But joy is there because it's a choice that I make by faith. So Father, help me to be joyful because my joy demonstrates my relationship with you and my trust in you. Father, we thank you for the joy of Jesus. We purpose to be more joyful people. Help us to stop complaining, stop being so critical, stop being so demanding, stop letting our expectations drive us, stop letting our circumstances uh, define us. And Father, we will be people of joy. So help us, God. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.